Israel has intensified its military operations in Gaza. Doctors there are struggling to help the wounded. They have very serious shortage of medications and uh, surgical material. One of them told me they had to conduct surgical procedures without anesthesia. It's Tuesday, October 31st, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Susan Levy in for Lisa Mullins. Law enforcement in Maine have received multiple reports in recent months of the Lewiston gunman's paranoia and worsening mental health. A local researcher believes that he's found a short story by the author of Little Women written under a pseudonym. There are all kinds of people who have done all cut research and who are interested and excited about this and I think we'll get some very exciting information. Plus, this year's best horror films and a chilly night tonight for trick-or-treaters is 401 First the News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Israeli forces have struck a crowded Gaza refugee camp, destroying apartments and leaving deep craters. This comes amid weeks of airstrikes since the Hamas attack on southern Israel October 7th. Gaza officials say the strike caused casualties and deaths, but the number was not clear yet. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarni reports it is the largest of the Gaza Strip's eight refugee camps, crowded districts established decades ago. Photos of the area show major damage and several craters at the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza. Gaza officials said there were six strikes that destroyed apartment blocks. The Israeli military said it was striking what it called a Hamas, quote, stronghold. It released images of explosions amid the mid-rise buildings in the camp. It said it was targeting a Hamas commander, tunnels, and militants. According to the UN, there were more than 116,000 people registered as living in the camp, a crowded residential district, though it was unclear how many had left in recent weeks. Alyssa Nadwani, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The United States and China have an agreement in principle for President Biden and China's leader Xi Jinping to meet face-to-face in San Francisco in November. That's according to a senior administration official speaking to NPR on condition of anonymity because the plan is not yet final. After seven years and no convictions, the state of Michigan is done pursuing criminal prosecutions against a former governor and others related to the Flint water crisis that began in 2014. Reaction moments ago from Flint Mayor Sheldon Neely. Today was a devastating blow, uh, not only um, to the city of Flint, but to every resident therein and also to the state of Michigan. This was a devastating blow. As Rick Pluta of Michigan Public Radio reports, it's after the Michigan Supreme Court rejected the state's final appeal. The Supreme Court's refusal to hear the case leaves standing lower court rulings. They held the state attorney general's Flint prosecution team mishandled filing charges against former Governor Rick Snyder. Courts had already dismissed similar charges against seven other public officials in connection with the contamination of Flint's water supply. The prosecution team released a statement calling the order, quote, a tragic ending to efforts to hold public officials accountable for the Flint water disaster. One justice set out the decision because she had served as his chief legal counsel while Rick Snyder was governor. For NPR News, I'm Rick Pluta in Lansing, Michigan. The co-founder of the bankrupt FTX cryptocurrency exchange was cross-examined this morning at his trial for fraud. Sam Bankman-Fried was pressed about his relationship with officials in the Bahamas where FTX was based before it collapsed last November. 
The Dow closes up 123 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Governor Healy says she is filing emergency regulations today outlining how Massachusetts will govern its upcoming emergency shelter wait list. A spokesperson says the new regulations are being made public today. The governor previously announced the state's shelter system will reach capacity this month and it will no longer guarantee emergency housing for all qualifying families who need it. Healy expressed her concern for those families today on WBUR's Radio Boston. I'm worried about any family in our state who is experiencing housing insecurity. I mean, my heart aches for moms and dads out there who, uh, in particular, who have kids um, and they don't have a roof over their head, okay? I mean, of course I'm worried about that. An emergency hearing was held this afternoon to challenge Healy's decision to cap the state's emergency shelter system at 7,500 households. The state also moved to cap the length of time families can stay in the shelter system. The judge in the case says a ruling could be issued later today. The county jail in Dedham has been chosen for a pilot program to reduce the stigma of addiction. It's one of more than 100 pilot sites nationwide and the only jail in New England to be chosen for the program. Starting in December, the jail will provide participants with one-on-one counseling and small group sessions to address roadblocks that can be created by the stigma of addiction. Participants will also be offered evidence-based treatment options and medication to treat their addiction. A Boston researcher has linked a new pseudonym to Louisa May Alcott, the famed Massachusetts author of Little Women, who wrote under several different names during her career. WBUR's Solon Kelleher has more. Max Chapnick, who teaches at Northeastern University, has found 13 works by E.H. Gould, a name he believes Louisa May Alcott used as a pseudonym in her early career. He says the stories, poems, and work of nonfiction are peppered with references to Alcott's life and match her style. There's a ton of these sort of circumstantial connections there published at the right time in this period when she wasn't publishing under her own name, but between two periods of productivity in her life. Women of Alcott's time often used masculine-sounding pseudonyms to conceal their identity and publish more controversial works. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. All the locals are off tonight. The Celtics host the Indiana Pacers tomorrow night at the Garden. The Bruins are off until Thursday. Increasing clouds tonight with a low in the mid-30s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. A chance of rain. Mid-40s. 50 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Israel now says it's in the second phase of its war with the militant group Hamas. It has intensified ground operations in Gaza. This is not a war on a defined battlefield. It's being carried out in civilian areas. Dr. Mustafa Barghouti is based in Ramallah in the West Bank. That's about 60 miles from Gaza. Here is what he's hearing from the 17 medical teams he is in touch with in Gaza. They have very serious shortage of medications and uh, surgical material. And uh, the other day, one of them told me they had to conduct surgical procedures without anesthesia. 
Barghouti leads a political party called the Palestinian National Initiative. He is also a member of the Palestinian Liberation Organization and a medical doctor and an activist. Dr. Barghouti first spoke with us a couple of weeks ago. So when he came to the phone today, I asked for an update on what's happening, where he is in the West Bank. What we see in the West Bank is constant attacks uh, by Israeli illegal settlers who are terrorizing the civilian population and uh, protected by the Israeli army. The West Bank is absolutely cut into pieces. Uh, There is 650 Israeli military checkpoints blocking the freedom of movement. In the city of Ramallah, where you are, do things feel normal? Is traffic moving? Are shops open, restaurants open, all that? Yeah, but many medical supplies are short. Scarcity has started to appear. And, uh, of course, people here, I've I've just been in a demonstration where people were demonstrating against the huge massacre today in Jabalia camp in Gaza. Jabalia camp is is a place where, with 120,000 refugees who were already evicted by Israel in 1948, and uh, it's only one squared kilometer. And today they use these huge American bombs killing and injuring no less than 450 people in one strike. It's making everybody so angry, you know. I want to turn us to policy, to what you think should be done. Um, I mentioned we spoke to you earlier this month, and you told us, and I will quote you, Israel would not listen to any country but the United States, the only country that has leverage to tell Israel Enough is enough and allow human beings to receive humanitarian aid is the United States. Dr. Barghouti, what do you want to see the U.S. do? What do you want from President Biden and his administration? Uh, First of all, I am sorry to say that, but I have to say it, to be honest with you. Uh, I think the American president and the state secretary uh, are becoming not only complicit in these war crimes, but even participant in them because they supply all these weapons to Israel and they are not allowing a ceasefire. What we want now immediately is ceasefire, to stop the massacres, to stop the killing of innocent people for the sake of both Palestinians and Israelis. I mean, if President Biden and Secretary Blinken were on the line with us, they might argue the U.S. stands for human rights for both Israelis and Palestinians, and that it is ultimately up to Israel to make its own national security decisions. But uh, I don't believe that, because they don't care about human rights of Palestinians if they are watching three war crimes happening at the same time. The war crime of collective punishment against 2.3 million people, the war crime of genocide against civilian population, and the war crime of ethnic cleansing. And why don't they accept ceasefire? How many thousands and thousands of Palestinian children should die before Israel accepts a ceasefire? The other day, Netanyahu, yesterday, he said something very dangerous. He said that Israel is conducting its second independence war. What does that mean? Israel is independent already, but he means he's conducting the second Nakba against Palestinians, the second catastrophe, trying to ethnically cleanse Gaza and force 2.3 million people out of Gaza into Egypt, becoming refugees again after they have been refugees in 1948. When we spoke to you a couple of weeks ago, you said you still maintain what has been your lifelong vision for nonviolence, even now, because I can uh, hear the anger in your voice. 
Of course, I will never depart from this belief. I, I, I never changed my mind, even when the Israeli army shot me while I was treating an injured person in my white coat as a doctor. And I still carry the 35 shrapnels in my back. But that didn't change my, my, my mind or opinion that nonviolence is the best way. And, and I believe in that and I practice that. But the violence we see today are just beyond description. Look, I mean, a very simple comparison. United States gave and Europe gave Ukraine 224 billions of dollars of weapons and aid and everything to fight occupation. What about us? They are giving all the money and 14 billion dollars to Israel to occupy us. Are we not equal human beings? Isn't there one international law or there is one for Israel and one for the rest of the world? Let me tell you, this American policy is bad for Israelis. I think Netanyahu has become the worst and the biggest provocator of anti-Semitism worldwide because what he is doing is antagonizing people against Jewish people. And that's something I don't accept. So... That is your criticism of policymakers in Israel, in the United States. Just to be clear, your personal vision for nonviolence, this extends to Israelis as well. Respect for all human life. Of course, of course, no doubt about that. Of course. Today I was speaking in a joint conference with, uh, with one of my best friends, Avi Schlein, one of the best uh, Israeli historians in the world. And we didn't differ about anything. We have exactly the same views. <sighs> And uh, you've seen all these noble Jewish people who were demonstrating in the Central Station in New York and in Washington and in so many places saying one thing, ceasefire, ceasefire, ceasefire. Enough is enough. Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, doctor, activist and member of the Palestinian Liberation Organization in the West Bank. We reached him in Ramallah. Dr. Barghouti, thank you. Thank you. When questions about abortion have been put directly to voters in recent months, they've repeatedly signaled support for abortion rights. Last year, these ballot measures came to several states on the heels of the U.S. Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Now, abortion rights activists in Ohio are wondering if the same energy that fueled their success in states like Kansas will translate in their state this year. NPR's Sarah McCammon recently traveled across Ohio and has this report. It might not have sounded like a typical campaign event. Man, I feel like a woman. But for abortion rights activists in Youngstown, a recent karaoke night was just the thing. Because this has been a long slog, and we can't do everything, can't just be work, you know? Alexis Smith is a local radiologist. She helped organize the karaoke night for activists working to pass issue one. If approved, it would amend Ohio's constitution to guarantee the right to make reproductive health care decisions, including abortion. Abortion rights supporters here have been inspired by the success of their counterparts in several states last year where abortion was on the ballot. Smith says they worked for months to get enough signatures to put their own ballot question before Ohio voters, but then they ran into another obstacle. And then it was, oh, by the way, you have a month, and then there's going to be this election that's going to decide everything. Republican lawmakers in Ohio called a special election in August on another measure, also called Issue 1, that would have changed the rules and made it harder for the abortion rights amendment to pass. 
Ohio voters turned out in larger than expected numbers to reject that effort, leaving the threshold for passing an amendment at a simple majority. That fight is now fully underway, and the back-to-back -back votes seem to be creating confusion in the minds of some voters. Abortion rights supporters were asked to vote no on issue one in August and yes on issue one now. Ariana Allen is a nursing student at The Ohio State University in Lima. I actually, I don't know anymore. Allen says she's new to voting and she supports abortion rights, but she's trying to make sense of the ballot initiative. Yeah, because like no means it's like anti-abortion now. Allen says she's going to do more research and make sure she votes in line with her values. I met her as she was talking with anti-abortion activists who'd set up a booth inside the student center. That's why we're just you know, on campus trying to educate people on what is taking place this November. So do you know, what do you know about issue one? Anti-abortion groups say they will have made calls or knocked on doors of well over 600,000 voters by election day, urging them to vote no. Meanwhile, the abortion rights group, Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights, estimates they will have reached out to more than 3 million voters. Ohioans are making this decision in a state where a strict abortion ban is waiting in the wings. The law currently blocked in court bans most abortions after about six weeks and contains no exceptions for rape or incest. It briefly took effect last year, long enough for a 10-year-old rape victim to make national headlines after being forced to travel to neighboring Indiana for an abortion. What happened to that 10-year-old girl, let's be clear, was absolutely tragic. Amy Natosi is the press secretary for the anti-abortion group Protect Women Ohio. I think everybody can agree on that. Natosi's group is leading the effort to defeat issue one. We met up at a coffee shop in Dayton. She says she's grateful that the rapist was caught and prosecuted, but she stops short of saying that the girl should have had access to abortion in her home state. That is up to the voters and the legislature to decide. If issue one passes, the conversation ends. Desiree Thames leads a progressive Ohio think tank and has been working on the Vote Yes campaign. She believes Ohio voters will follow the example set in other states last year. What the Republicans, frankly, have done in this environment is they have created a window for advocates on the left to say, see, look, this is what we've been talking about. Our, our greatest fears, our nightmares are coming true, and this is our time to stand up and fight back. The results in Ohio will be closely watched as abortion rights groups work to put ballot questions before more voters next year, including in other key presidential battleground states like Arizona and Florida. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Columbus, Ohio. And you're listening to All Things Considered. On 90.9 WBUR, thanks for listening. I'm Susan Levy. In about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, the book being Henry, the Fonz, and beyond, Henry Winkler is on the show today. On Wall Street, the Dow finished up about four-tenths of a percent to close at 33,052. The S&P is up more than six-tenths of a percent to close at 41.93. And the NASDAQ also finished up about half a percent to close at 12,851. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Greener U, a design-build firm that plans, engineers, and builds solutions for getting to carbon neutrality. GreenerU.com. And the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. 
After seeing news alerts all day, sometimes it's hard to understand the full story. Get the WBUR mobile app and we'll be there with context and perspective live. You can listen anywhere on the WBUR app. It's 50 degrees at 420, increasing clouds tonight with a low in the mid-30s. It'll be mostly cloudy tomorrow, chance of rain mid-40s. Thursday, sunshine near 50. And for Friday, mostly sunny, upper 50s. At this point, the weekend looks sunny. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation, This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Halloween is just around the corner and the nights are getting longer, which means there's no better time to curl up on the couch, maybe light some candles, and binge on this year's scariest movies. (laughs) On the menu is a thriller in which teenagers talk to the dead. Light the candle to open the door. Blow it out to close it. And a film where humans face their fear of new technology. Megan, turn off. Recalibrating response model. <laughs> and another movie in which families face long-held secrets. When I was 10, I was in a coma. But I don't even remember being sick. Well, here to take us on a journey through the year's biggest scares is horror scholar and filmmaker Rebecca McKendry. Welcome back. Hello. Hello. I'm excited to be back. Oh, we're so excited to have you back. So when you and I talked last year, I told you that scary movies are not my thing. Like, I love the idea of them, but then later when I'm lying in bed alone at night... I can't get the scenes out of my head and I can't fall asleep. So I'm going to count on you to catch me up on what's out there this year. How would you rate this year in the horror genre? So we have seen another amazing year for horror with really high box office returns. Some of our biggest films of the year have been Scream 6. Megan did incredibly well. The Nun 2, Insidious, The Red Door, Evil Dead Rise, and The New Exorcist just did really well. Yeah, I keep seeing billboards for that one in L.A. What about, like, smaller indie horror films? Any stand out to you this past year? On the indie spectrum this year, there's a couple of trends that we've seen. We've seen a lot of what I'll call trauma horror, which is about characters who are dealing with trauma. They've got deaths. They're recovering from some type of traumatic event that happened before the movie. The biggest one by far on the indie scene was Talk To Me, which came out of Australia, was picked up by A24, and ended up being one of the the top 10 highest grossing horror films of the year. Like, it really did well. And it is hyper scary. This is not horror light by any capacity. What is it about? It is about a group of kids who find this hand, this kind of statue plaster hand, that when you hold it and say, talk to me, 
you can suddenly talk to a dead person. And in some cases, they almost possess you and you can have conversations with them. But you can only do it for a short amount of time or else you can kind of lose yourself and they can take control of your body. Put your hand on it. Now say, talk to me. Talk to me. Oh my God, I can't do dead people. Okay. Now I also understand that there's a subgenre that you've been seeing more and more of. It's called liminal horror. What even is that? It basically means to be trapped in an enduring nightmare, a liminal space, which technically means like an in-between space. It's like being trapped in a purgatory where there is, you don't get death, nor is it your normal everyday life. You're just kind of trapped there. And where we've seen liminal horror really explode on the independent scene has been with two films, Skinnamarink, which is on Shudder, but then also did this massive theatrical thing where it was just getting all of this press as as kind of one of the scariest films of the year. And that's what it is. It is um, existing in this kind of in-between space of kids trapped in a house. In this house. In this house. And then also on the indie scene, we saw an amazing film come out on Screenbox called The Outwaters, which is about a group of young adults who go vacationing in the desert and find themselves kind of trapped in a waking nightmare in the desert that they can't get away from. These films, they really feel like a direct response to all of the stuff that we went through during the pandemic because it is about being trapped in this existential dread of a nightmare that you can't get away from. It's just enduring. Totally. Is there a genre of horror that you don't see much of anymore that you think is ripe for a comeback? So horror comedies, we had a lot in the 1980s. Things like American Werewolf in London. David, you're hurting my feelings. Hurting your feelings? Has it occurred to you that it might be unsettling to see you rise from the grave to visit me? Sorry to be upsetting you, David. Return of the Living Dead, Reanimator, like these were big, big kind of tentpole movies of the 1980s. But studios in general are still really nervous about horror comedies because horror is something that it goes across age brackets. It goes across cultures. It literally spans the globe. If something jumps out at you, it is scary. But humor is something that is more divisive depending on the culture that you're in, the age bracket that you fall into. Um, This year, the one big one that we had Uh came out through Amazon and it's called Totally Killer. And it is a movie about a girl who is time traveled back in time to when her town had a slasher problem a number of years ago. I'd like to report a crime that hasn't happened yet. Have you seen the movie Back to the Future? Basically, I'm living that movie right now, which is how I know there's going to be a murder tonight. (laughs) And she time travels back and is trying to save her mom and the town from the slasher. Okay, well, maybe horror comedy is where I need to go because I'm a total scaredy pants. But do you have any other recommendations for someone like me? Like something that isn't too scary, but it's still spooky. It still gives that woo feeling because I do crave that. Yeah, we've definitely had a couple of standouts in the the kind of lighter horror categories this year. No One Will Save You is currently streaming on Hulu. This is a Brian Duffield movie. It is about a girl by herself in a house fighting aliens. Aliens doesn't scare me. (laughs) Yeah. 
I'll also give a shout out to Disney's Haunted Mansion this oh, year, yeah. which was surprisingly scary. Like I took really? my kids oh, to I this thought... one thinking, yeah. oh, it's Disney's Haunted Mansion. It's going to be completely fun. And it was, but it had enough scares in it that I felt tense at moments. Okay, I love that you brought up Disney's Haunted Mansion because as a kid, I loved that ride, but it did totally scare me. And maybe what I'm asking you, Rebecca, is some bigger life advice here because what should someone like me do when I love being scared in the moment? I just can't live with the consequences afterwards. What should I consume? That's a great question. So I always view it as if a movie is still making me think about it later that night, what I need to embrace, if anything, is that that's a good movie, that they did something that's really psychologically effective. Yeah. And then it's always the idea of kind of telling yourself that it's just a movie. That was a big marketing phrase that we used in the <laughs> 1970s. Tell yourself that it's only a movie over and over only again. But at the end of the day, you know, that's what you're paying for. That's what you want in a good horror movie is you want that scare when you're in the moment and you want it to kind of stick to your bones for a little bit afterwards, even if it's something that you know, you know, a robot child is not going to get you and you're not going to go in a haunted mansion anytime soon. The fact that it leaves kind of an echo in your system, that's a good horror movie. That is Rebecca McKendry, horror scholar and filmmaker. Thank you so much for being here again. Oh, thank you so much for bringing me back and keeping it scary. <laughs> You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Susan Levy, and this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 25 minutes, a local researcher believes that he's found a short story by the author of Little Women written under a different name, that and much more still ahead on All Things Considered. 49 degrees at 430, increasing clouds tonight with a low in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, a slight chance of rain mid-40s. Sunshine on Thursday near 50, and mostly sunny Friday, upper 50s. Thanks for listening. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org and Stepping Stone for a future where all students have access to a college education. Learn how you can support Boston students today at SteppingStone.org. I'm Robin Young. President Biden has expressed almost unqualified support for Israel and now has linked the conflict to the war in Ukraine. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. We'll hear the history of the U.S.-Israeli relationship next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. One of the largest refugee camps in Gaza was leveled by airstrikes from Israeli forces today while ground troops battled Hamas militants. Colonel Richard Hecht is spokesman for the Israel Defense Forces, or IDF. There was a very senior Hamas commander in that area. Uh, sadly, he was hiding again, as they do, behind uh, within civilians. And that's all I can see at this point. We're looking into it and we'll be coming out with more 
data as we learn what happened there. The bombing left the refugee camp near Gaza City completely demolished with gaping holes where apartment buildings once stood. More than half of Gaza's 2.3 million Palestinians have fled their homes, but several hundred thousand remain in the north. That's where Israeli troops have reportedly advanced and are vowing to crush the militant group's ability to govern Gaza or threaten Israel. A group of Republican congressmen from New York are scrambling to marshal enough votes to oust fellow Congressman George Santos from the House. The scandal-plagued lawmaker could face a vote as early as tomorrow. Here's NPR's Brian Mann. This week, Republican Congressman Anthony D'Esposito introduced a resolution that would oust Santos from Congress. By deceiving voters regarding his biography, defrauding donors, and engaging in other illegal campaign behavior. And whereas, as a result of these actions, George Santos is not fit to serve his constituents as a United States representative. D'Esposito told reporters he believes enough Democrats and Republicans will vote to expel Santos that they'll reach the two-thirds majority needed later this week week. But Speaker Mike Johnson has said Santos has a right to due process in court and could take steps to avoid a vote by the full House. Santos faces 23 federal felony charges. He's denied any criminal wrongdoing. That's Brian Mann reporting. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. The city of Worcester is celebrating the construction of a new permanent supportive housing development for people who've been experiencing long-term homelessness. It does represent a first in the state. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker has more. The building in South Worcester features 24 fully furnished micro-unit studio apartments. It'll have an on-site case manager to connect tenants with support services. It's run by Worcester Housing Authority. CEO Alex Corrales says they're the first housing authority in Massachusetts to develop housing specifically for people coming out of homelessness. With this project, the housing authority is making a clear statement. We want to help our homeless population. For some of our residents, it's going to be a place of rebirth. But certainly for all of them, it will be a place to live. Local service providers are identifying chronically homeless adults to apply for the apartments. They'll start moving in in about a month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. A mail carrier is hospitalized with serious injuries following a brazen daylight attack today in Medford. The U.S. Postal Service says the letter carrier was assaulted by three people just before noon while working his route in the area of Arden Street. Law authorities are investigating. A group of historians and others want to exonerate hundreds of people executed or accused of witchcraft in Massachusetts. The Massachusetts Witch Hunt Justice Project wants the state to formally apologize for the conviction of the witches. Sarah Jack is a co-founder of the project and is descended from two women hanged in the Salem witch trials and a third who stood trial in Boston. It is a formal stance against scapegoating, against um, fearing others for misfortunes, against fear That has to do with not understanding somebody who may be on the margins. And she says the group has begun an outreach campaign to local lawmakers. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Celebrity Series with Renee Fleming and Inan Barnaton. November 12th at Symphony Hall with Voice of Nature, the Anthropocene, celebritieseries.org. 
Well, the locals are off tonight. The Celtics host the Indiana Pacers tomorrow night at the Garden. The Bruins are off until Thursday. Increasing clouds tonight for this Halloween night, a low in the mid-30s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, chance of rain, mid-40s. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways. In select theaters Friday, everywhere November 10th. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Scott Detrow. If you were born after, say, 1990, when you think of the actor Henry Winkler, you probably first think of Barry Zuckercorn, the incompetent lawyer on Arrested hey, Development. What are we doing here? What's the plan? The plan? You're our lawyer. It's a figure of speech. Or maybe the acting teacher Gene Cousinow on the HBO dark comedy Barry. Now look, you're in a shell. You need to break out. And I've got the perfect antidote for you. You're going to play Blake in Glengarry Glen Ross, the movie. Here's my only direction. Let the cat out. But for those of us born before 1990, he will always be Arthur Fonzarelli, AKA the Fonz, on Happy Days. Cause I'm the Fonz, huh? Hey, 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 hey. What does that mean? The incredible story of how Winkler got that role is just one part of his new memoir, Being Henry. And before we started talking about his life and his career, I asked him to read from his book about the moment Winkler became the Fonz. I'm in Hollywood for one week, and I audition for a new series. So how was I going to accomplish this? I had no clue. Then I opened my mouth, and something very odd happened. What came out was a voice that was not mine. One I actually never heard before from me. Deeper, lower, in my chest than any other regular speaking voice. Assured, authoritative, rough around the edges. So I pointed to Pasquale. E, I said. That, that scene, first of all, it's just amazing to to get a sense of going to be present at the creation for such a big pop culture moment. But it gets to so many themes of the book. You were so comfortable and self-assured in character, particularly this character. Why do you think that was so hard as you think back on it with all of that work that you've done? Because objectively, you were cool. You were the Fonz. But that was acting. I was just being who I wanted to be, not who I ever thought I was. Yeah. You know, people sometimes say there's no such thing as an overnight sensation, but you truly were. You went from couch surfing and awkwardly staying too long with friends in L.A. as you as you scrambled for auditions to suddenly being the center of a cultural phenomenon. That, that must have been so startling. I have to say it was startling. It was fun. And I made an appearance in Little Rock, Arkansas, after we filmed on Friday night, I flew there so I could sign autographs at the mall. And we landed like at 1130 at night. And when I got off the plane, I walked back on the plane because there was a big party. 
going on. And I said to the flight attendant, I said, excuse me, but there are lots of people and I don't want to like disturb their party. Is there a way to walk around it? She said, that party is for you. <laughs> there were 3,000 people in, in 50s clothing <laughs> waiting for me to get off that plane. Wow. You, you do happy days. It's a huge success. But then the second half of the 80s and basically all of the 90s, you're doing producing work, you're doing some directing work, but you were in a real funk as an actor because people didn't want to put the Fonz in their movie, in their show. That must have been hard. Absolutely. When I did Scream, they said, you know, all right, uh, the director asked you to be in it, but we're not putting your name on the movie or on the poster. It was really bad. That's why I became a producer and tried directing. I, I wasn't getting uh, work as an actor, which was the dream I've had since I was seven. And it was devastating. Self-consciousness and self-doubt were such a persistent problem for you. When did you realize that you needed to be a little more serious about your mental health? You needed to figure out why you had this self-doubt. You needed to, to talk to a therapist. About nine, ten years ago. I was still functioning as an actor, but my life was not fun. I could only relate to my puppies, my children. Stacy felt left out, my wife. And I found this incredible therapist. And I have to say, I, I say it in the book, if I were to give this doctor, this woman, a gift, it would have to be the size of a skyscraper. Because only by asking questions or saying, never answering the question, just saying, so, what do you think? What do you feel? What's the answer? Pushing me, pushing, prodding me. Yeah. That is the umbrella of the book. Starting being who I thought I should be and not wavering from that very tight structure because of fear that what happens if I change a little bit? What happens, oh my God, if this part of me comes out to being a more authentic human being on the earth? I mean, I have to assume no question this helped you so much with your personal relationships and with your family, but how did it help you with your acting? Oh my God. Listen, to know yourself is to know the universe. I love that. It had to help on screen too, though, right? I, I, I want to be the most talented actor. I want to be Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> but I could never have played Gene Cousinow without this latter part of my life journey. And that's not even hyperbole. I want to say definitively that is true. The last question I have for you is... You have done a lot of self-reflection in the last decade or so, but now you've put it to paper. You've written this memoir. Is there anything you realized about yourself writing this book that hadn't fully clicked before? That is a good question because the, the thought I had was my, my, my youngest son, Max, was the one who pushed me for years and said, you should write your stories. You got a lot of stories. You should tell these stories. And I said, I can't do it. It seems daunting to me. 
it, I go back to it and it, it, it reaffirms an old thought that I've learned so far in my life. And that is, you don't know what you can accomplish until you just try. I've tried to talk my way out of so many adventures that I would have given up if I didn't eventually say, Henry, shut up and just try. That was Henry Winkler. His new memoir is Being Henry, The Fonz and Beyond. Sky, hello blue. There's nothing can hold me when I hold you. So right, you can't be wrong. And before we let him go, we couldn't resist asking if the Fonz could take us out of the segment. All right, let me tell you something. You're listening to All Things Considered, NPR News. How lucky are your ears? If a Republican president returns to the White House in 2025, conservative groups have a plan to shape the next census in 2030. Many of their proposals threaten the accuracy of statistics, statistics that form the foundation of U.S. democracy. That is raising concerns among census watchers, including a former top official in the Trump administration. NPR's Hansi Wong reports. It's a plan that could turn out to be a sequel to the years of census interference by the Trump administration. Thank you very much, everyone. Including its failed push to use the census to ask, Are you a citizen of the United States of America? That was former President Donald Trump speaking outside the White House in 2019, two weeks after the Supreme Court's Chief Justice John Roberts announced the court had blocked the administration from adding a citizenship question. Here the Voting Rights Act enforcement rationale, the sole stated reason, seems to have been contrived. During this legal fight, the Census Bureau urged the administration to use government records, which it said would produce more accurate data about people's U.S. citizenship status. Adding a citizenship question is also likely to discourage households with Latino or Asian American residents from participating in the census. That would hurt the accuracy of numbers that the Constitution says must include the whole number of persons, not just citizens, in each state. Those numbers are used to divide up local representation and guide federal funding. Herman Haberman, a former deputy director of the Bureau, points out the Bureau already produces estimates of U.S. citizens through an annual survey. So we do it. We just don't do it at the block level. And so the question always became, why is that necessary? This new proposal for a citizenship question is part of a larger plan to dismantle aspects of the federal government. It's an effort led by a conservative think tank called the Heritage Foundation, which did not make any representatives available for an interview. But how a Republican administration explains why a citizenship question is necessary could spark lawsuits, says Thomas Sines, president of the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. I've never heard articulated a justification for the citizenship question that is not fairly obviously a veil to disguise racial and partisan intent. All of these things are actually attempts to influence who is and is not counted. Mita Nan of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights is also concerned that these conservative groups want to align the Census Bureau's mission with, quote, conservative principles to fight back against what they call liberal bureaucrats. 
should just be focused on ensuring that we have a fair and accurate account of everyone that resides in our country. The plan's call to carry out a conservative agenda at the Bureau is also catching public criticism from a former top official in the Trump administration, former Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who led the failed push for a citizenship question. I don't think that census should try to shade things in any political direction. For Terry Ann Lowenthal, a census consultant who served on former President Barack Obama's transition team, this plan is a sign these conservative groups understand there's power in census results. If you control the production and flow of information, you can control how people view their government, the actions their government is taking or not taking, and their view of the world around them. And these proposals, Lowenthal says, should raise alarm bells for anyone worried about the future. Hansi Luang, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. On 90.9 WBUR, I'm Susan Levy. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Israel bombs the largest refugee camp in Gaza. And we'll break down the congressional divide on Ukraine and Israel. A new House bill proposes splitting funds for the war. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAFCPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. New York Times book critic Dwight Garner comes to City Space on Tuesday, November 7th to talk about his memoir, The Upstairs Delicatessen. Join us for a conversation about the joys of eating and reading, and tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Increasing clouds tonight with a low in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, chance of rain, mid-40s. Sunshine on Thursday, near 50, mostly sunny on Friday, upper 50s. And at this point, the weekend looks sunny. 49 degrees at 449. Thanks for listening. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. And Fresh City Kitchen, now accepting orders and helping you plan for your holiday catering needs. Learn more at freshcitykitchen.com. Sen Morimoto's music defies simple categories. Rock, punk, post-rock, jazz, hip-hop. What about when someone asks? We've just been saying art pop. It has a ring to it, and no one knows what it actually means. Oh, it's a 22. You live a long life, feeling bad for being you. You run away from love, you don't even mean to. The music of Sen Morimoto on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. On a Tuesday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. There is new information about the shooting in Maine, which killed 18 people last week. Documents released by police show that family and army officials were deeply alarmed by the shooter's deteriorating mental health months before he carried out that state's worst mass shooting. Reporter Kevin Miller with Maine Public Radio is here with the latest. Hi there. Hello, how are you? Hi. So, Kevin, um, first off, remind us, if you can, exactly what happened last week. So police say that Robert Card, a 40-year-old Army reservist, walked into a bowling alley and then a restaurant last Wednesday with a high-powered rifle. He shot more than 30 people, killing 18 of them. 
He then fled the scene and parts of central Maine were basically locked down until late Friday. That's when Mr. Card was discovered dead of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. What new information are we learning about the mental health of the shooter and the concerns that people who knew him had before this deadly shooting? Well, these documents show that Robert Card's family and members of the Army Reserve Unit that he served in had growing concerns about his paranoia, his aggressive behavior and his talk, as well as his access to guns. They, they communicated some of these concerns to police as early as last May. Mr. Card's family told the local sheriff's office that Card was hearing voices, that he thought people were, were calling him a pedophile, and they told police that he had access to more than a dozen guns. Uh, we also learned more about what led him to being admitted to a military hospital for two weeks back in July. Uh, leaders of his Army Reserve unit were concerned about his erratic behavior, and then just one month ago, police were told from a federal, by a fellow, excuse me, by a fellow reservist that was worried about Carr because he was becoming so paranoid and angry that he said he might, quote, he might, quote, snap and commit a mass shooting. I mean, just listening to your description there, these are incredibly serious warning signs. How did the police and the Army respond to these concerns? Well, back in May, the sheriff's office talked to the family and to leaders of Mr. Card's Army Reserve Unit. The family members told police that they would talk to him. Army Reserve leaders also told police that they would speak with him. But if we flash forward to mid-September, deputies then received even more concerning reports, including that he was threatening to, quote, shoot up that Army Reserve facility. They tried to talk to Card twice at his home home in uh, rural Bowdoin, Maine, uh, doing what they call a wellness check. But both times they were unsuccessful. Card either wasn't there or he wasn't answering the door. And then a reserve unit leader suggested that police give Card time to cool off as the reserve tried to get him into treatment. Uh, Card, he was declared non-deployable by the military, but it doesn't look like the sheriff's office made any additional attempts to interact with Card after that. And it also doesn't appear that the army was able to get him additional help. And then the mass shooting happened about six weeks later. In just a few sentences, were there any other steps that authorities could have taken here? Yeah, that's obviously the big question here. Maine has a yellow flag law that allows police to temporarily confiscate a person's guns. If a medical professional and a judge agree that that person poses a risk to themselves or others, this is a less sweeping version of the red flag laws that are on the books in dozens of states, but that was never employed with CARD. And a lot of people are asking why not. And there are also questions about whether he should have been prohibited under federal law from buying new guns because of that hospitalization I mentioned. But he, legal, he apparently legally bought guns mm-hmm. pretty easily within days of the shooting. That's reporter Kevin Miller with Maine Public Radio. Kevin, thanks. Thank you very much. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. A local researcher believes he has found a short story by the author of Little Women written under a pseudonym. Louisa May Alcott was known to publish under various names throughout her writing career. WBUR Solon Kelleher reports this may be the first discovery of a new pseudonym for Alcott since the 1940s. A short story from 1860 titled The Phantom caught the eye of graduate student Max Chapnick as he searched for lost works by Louisa May Alcott. The story had an elegant humor and other familiar traits of her style. But there was one problem. The newspaper credited the story to E.H. Gould. So Chapnick chalked it up to another fruitless day in his research. He went to bed, fell asleep, and... At like 1 a.m., I woke up and I was like, 
oh wait, what if the story is by her and it's a pseudonym? (laughs) One important clue for Chapnick was the reference in the story to Charles Dickens, one of Alcott's favorite writers. It's like a spoof on the Christmas Carol story. The coins are talking, like the Scrooge character's coins are talking. It's an allegory against greed, like the original tale. But the Scrooge character in this version also learns not to create sexual quid pro quos with women for money. Chapnick notes that women often wrote under masculine-sounding pen names to try out more controversial topics and styles. But Alcott had a variety of pseudonyms. A.M. Barnard, Flora Fairfield, Tribulation Periwinkle. But this Gould pseudonym has never been associated with Alcott before. He combed through as many databases as he could, both digital and microfilm, to find any more clues. It was a lot of scrolling, several days of scrolling. Chapnick found seven stories, five poems, and one piece of nonfiction, all under the name E.H. Gould. Chapnick is now in his postdoc at Northeastern University, and he says further research is needed to confirm his theory. One of the challenges of doing this work is that many archives are not digitized. They're not as easily searchable. That's something American Antiquarian Society curator Elizabeth Pope says is a common misconception. I think people sometimes think that everything is on Google. Everything's been digitized and is in Google Books. A fold in the digital scan covered the first initial of the author's name. So Chapnick had searched for both I and E. H. Gould. Pope and I adopted the roles of Alcott detectives as we searched for the true initial. If you look at the digitized version and zoom in, you can see that there's a wrinkle in the physical newspaper when it got scanned. If Pope finds the original physical copy of the newspaper, we can see whether the author line was E, consistent with all the other works Chapnick had uncovered, or I, making it an outlier. So it's March 10th, 1860. All right, and we'll see if we can locate that. Pope leaves me at her desk, and in less than five minutes, she returns with a cart and a large stack of 163-year-old newspapers. Let's see. Yeah, it's March 10th. We find it, an original print of the March 10th, 1860 edition of the Olive Branch, fragile and torn at the crease with a slight fold over the author's name. She handles the papers with her bare hands. And if I very gently push this, we can see that it actually is E.H. Gould. This little unfolding confirms a consistency in the pseudonym E.H. Gould. I call Chapnick right when I get back to my car to share the news of our little discovery. Wow! Thank you! That's great! We spoke about how this is exactly the type of further exploration Chapnick hopes his work inspires. He believes there's more out there, and he's not alone. Oh, rare. Rare. Jan Turnquist, executive director of The Orchard House, where Alcott wrote Little Women. New pen names are not commonly discovered. (laughs) Her eyes light up as she reacted to the news of E.H. Gould. There are all kinds of people who have done all-cut research and who are interested and excited about this. And by opening up in this way, I think we'll get some very exciting information. The last time new pseudonyms were tied to Alcott was in the 1940s. It set off ripples of discoveries over the following decades that eventually led to a wave of feminist commentary on Alcott's works in the 80s and 90s. The finding of this pseudonym marks the beginning of what is sure to be a long conversation reading into the words of Louisa May Alcott, or should we say, E.H. Gould. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. 
To read more about this story and read The Phantom in its entirety as published in the 1860 paper, visit WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Participant with the new film Radical, based on the true story of a middle school teacher in an impoverished town in Mexico who tries a new method of unlocking his students' potential, starring Eugenio Derbez in Theaters Friday. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson wants to pay for new aid to Israel by cutting money from the IRS. That plan is not going over well with the Democratic-led Senate. He's definitely playing with fire because he's politicizing and making partisan an issue that should be above politics. It's Tuesday, October 31st, and this is 90.9 WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Susan Levy in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, Israel bombs the largest refugee camp in Gaza. Israel says it killed a senior Hamas commander. Palestinians say it caused a huge number of civilian casualties. And the U.S. Supreme Court is considering whether public officials should be allowed to block critics from their personal social media pages. A chilly night for Halloween trick-or-treaters. It's 5.01, first the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin had a dramatic day on Capitol Hill. Their testimony at a Senate hearing was repeatedly interrupted by protesters calling for an end to Israel's bombardment of Gaza. The hearing had to be suspended as Capitol Police escorted the protesters from the room. Lincoln and Austin appeared jointly on Capitol Hill to make the case for continued spending to help both Israel and Ukraine. The Biden administration's $105 billion request is facing challenges in a divided Congress. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Secretary Blinken is telling senators that what happens in Ukraine is connected to the Middle East and affects U.S. policy in Asia. He says U.S. adversaries from Hamas to Iran and Russia see this as, quote, all one fight. If we start to peel off pieces uh, of this package, they'll see that. They'll understand that we are playing whack-a-mole while they cooperate increasingly and pose uh, an ever greater threat 
to our security as well as to that of allies and partners. While senators on the Appropriations Committee mostly agreed with him, the new House Speaker wants to cut out Ukraine funding and link Israel funding to other budget cuts. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. House Republicans yesterday unveiled a standalone funding bill for Israel only. It provides some $14 billion in aid and proposes paying for it by cutting funding to the Internal Revenue Service. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said it's not a serious proposal. The Israeli military has confirmed that its warplanes carried out an airstrike today on the Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza. A spokesman says the strike targeted a senior Hamas commander and that the commander and several other Hamas members were killed. Palestinian health officials say at least 50 Palestinians were killed. Israel accuses Hamas of using civilian buildings as cover for its fighters and weaponry. FBI Director Chris Wray says there is an increased risk of potential terrorist violence in the U.S. in light of the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. Ray says the threat is posed by both lone actors as well as traditional terrorist groups, as NPR's Ryan Lucas reports. Ray says the FBI's most immediate concern in the U.S. is that violent extremists inspired by the Israel-Hamas conflict will carry out attacks against Americans. But he told congressional lawmakers that terrorist groups such as al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Hezbollah have all made statements in recent weeks that suggest they might consider trying to conduct an attack in the U.S. We are not currently tracking an imminent credible threat from a foreign terrorist organization, a structured attack here or something like that. But it is something that we think heightened vigilance is warranted for. Ray also stressed that this is not a time for panic, and he says Americans should continue to go about their daily lives as usual. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. State officials filed emergency regulations today that they say allows them to alter the family shelter system without approval from lawmakers. As WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, this came just before a court hearing to determine whether the state can use a wait list instead of providing immediate shelter for all eligible families. State officials say the emergency regulations allow them to create and run a wait list in the family shelter system. They would also allow a limit on how long families can stay in shelter. Assistant Attorney General Kimberly Parr told a judge these moves are necessary because the shelter program has more than doubled in size over the past year. And it keeps going up and up and up. It's unrelenting. Advocates decried the moves, saying they will fundamentally change the state's right to shelter law. The judge is expected to rule by Wednesday on whether the wait list can move forward. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Eight of the 13 members of a Boston Public Schools task force created to advise the school committee on how to support English language learners has resigned this morning. The Boston Globe reports that the members called the district's new inclusion plan harmful. The plan entails integrating English learners into general education classrooms. The task force members had said it could lead to more disciplinary problems and higher dropout rates. President Biden is facing a new challenge for his party's presidential nomination, Congressman Dean Phillips, a moderate Democrat from Minnesota. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports Phillips has filed papers to compete in the New Hampshire primary and spent time campaigning in the state today. 
Phillips says he wants to repair America by reaching across the political divide. He says while he supports Joe Biden's agenda, it's time for the president to pass the torch, and that polls suggest many Americans agree. Campaigning in Manchester today, Phillips said a number of state and national polls show Biden running behind Donald Trump, even though Trump faces multiple criminal charges. Not about disrespecting President Biden. I respect him. But he's going to lose the 2024 election to Donald Trump. And that is an existential threat to the United States of America. Phillips is campaigning here days after Biden announced that he will not appear on the New Hampshire primary ballot because Democratic Party leaders pick South Carolina to hold the first primary next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks in Manchester. Increasing clouds tonight with a low in the mid-30s and mostly cloudy tomorrow with a chance of rain. Mid-40s, 49 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Israel unleashed a devastating airstrike today on the largest refugee camp in Gaza. Israel says it killed a senior Hamas commander. Palestinians say it caused a large number of civilian casualties, though no precise figures are yet available. For the latest, we have NPR's Greg Myrie on the line from Tel Aviv. And Greg, what can you tell us? What do we know about the strike? So the Israeli strike hit the Jabalia refugee camp, and, and despite this name, it's, it's not a tent camp. It's a long-established neighborhood with apartment buildings dating back decades, and it's right on the outskirts of Gaza City. Now, the Hamas-run Interior Ministry says the Israeli jets fired at least six bombs on the crowded neighborhood, uh, creating a number of craters. Uh, multiple apartment blocks and homes were destroyed or badly damaged. A dust-covered residents recovered the bodies of the dead. They carried off the wounded for treatment, and some of them just wailed with grief. Palestinians are describing this as one of the deadliest Israeli attack yet, though, as you mentioned, we do not currently have reliable casualty figures. And Greg, at this point, what is Israel saying about this attack? So the military gave a briefing and said the target was Hamas militants, including a gentleman named Ibrahim Biari, described as a senior commander and a central figure in the October 7 Hamas attack on Israel. The military said uh, one of Hamas's underground tunnels was destroyed. It wasn't clear if that's where the Hamas members were at the time of the attack. Uh, Israel claims uh, Biari was killed, though it's not clear how Israel was able to confirm this so quickly. Hamas says he's not dead and that Israel is intentionally killing civilians. On most day, pal- days, Palestinian officials in Gaza are reporting hundreds of civilians killed. Right. Well, in this attack and many others, Israel says the target is Hamas. But in many instances, the civilian toll is indeed high. How does Israel account for that? So Israel says that Hamas leaders are using Palestinian civilians as human shields. They say Hamas members live in crowded neighborhoods and they often move around in a tunnel network that was intentionally built under heavily populated areas. And human rights groups, including uh, an Israeli one, said that's no excuse for for killing civilians in in wartime. Uh, Israel says it's told Palestinians to leave northern Gaza. Many have heeded the warning and gone to southern Gaza, which is 
is also being bombed, though not quite as intensively. Uh, some Palestinians have remained in the north because they say they can't leave or simply aren't willing to abandon their homes. Clearly, this is uh, not stopping the Israeli airstrikes. Jabalia had well over 100,000 residents squeezed into a very small space before the fighting began, uh, and some have left, but clearly there were, there were many still there. Right. And this airstrike today, it took place near Gaza City with Israeli ground troops operating nearby. When you think about it, what does this attack and others in recent days tell us about Israel's approach here? So the Israeli ground forces have been moving toward the northern and eastern outskirts of Gaza City, which is on the Mediterranean coast. And there are clashes on the ground. But Israel is, is still calling in massive airstrikes like the one today. So it, it seems like they're, they're doing this sort of two-part approach where uh, the uh, uh, the ground forces appear to be trying to push the Hamas fighters towards Gaza City uh, and then unleash heavy airstrikes against them. Uh, this is creating uh, high casualty figures, but the Israeli forces are making, uh, making progress on the ground and, and squeezing the Hamas fighters into this uh, tighter, tighter region. That is NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Greg, thank you. Thanks, Juana. Well, the war in Gaza is also dominating the conversation here in Washington today. The House plans to vote this week on an aid package for Israel. It includes just over $14 billion, mostly in military aid, and it would pay for that spending with cuts to the IRS. The bill is the first major legislation from new House Speaker Mike Johnson. Democrats say the bill is a non-starter. Johnson is also facing opposition from senators in his own party, including... Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel is following all this from the Capitol. Hey, Eric. Hi, Mary Louise. Let's start with what Congress is doing. What's going on right now when it comes to Israel? Well, the Senate confirmed this afternoon Jack Lew. That's Biden's pick to be the ambassador to Israel. The next thing on the agenda, like you mentioned, is passing an aid package. But there is a real disagreement going on between the House and the Senate about just what that should look like. House Republicans are saying just the aid to Israel, but that idea it puts them at odds with President Biden, Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer, and even Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who says he wants to see a combined package. So that's aid to Israel with Ukraine and money to Taiwan and money for the U.S.-Mexico border. McConnell told reporters this afternoon that he sees it all as connected to protecting America's interests. And where do the rest of Republicans in the Senate line up on this? Are they on board with, with how McConnell sees it? I mean, it depends, right? So the folks you would think of as more closely aligned with former President Donald Trump, they support the House's proposal, separate Israel aid from Ukraine aid and the rest. Our colleague Vincent Acovedo caught up with Josh Hawley of Missouri, and he called McConnell's push to combine things a mistake and said there's no time to wait on Israel. My point is, let's do this right now, this week, immediately. Let's get this done. And then we can have a debate on Ukraine and on the southern border and on Taiwan and on all the other funding the administration wants, a lot of which is, is, is going to be controversial. But look, there's a contingent of Senate Republicans who support McConnell's approach here, like Utah's Mitt Romney, who I talked to earlier this afternoon. Ultimately, I believe the final uh, legislation is going to deal with Ukraine and Israel together. Uh, that's because the great majority of people in both the House and the Senate uh, want that to occur. Whatever the Senate agrees to, it's going to have to be bipartisan. 
that's because of the 60-volt threshold it will take to get something out of the chamber. Well, there's an urgency here, of course, Eric. I mean, we've heard President Biden talk about that, about how urgent these aid requests are. But what you're telling us is the House and the Senate are really far apart. Members, members of the same party are really far apart. Could this whole thing fall apart? Look, no one's made money betting on Congress recently, so it's going to be hard to say. But it's true that the Biden administration has made its concerns known. They're pressing Congress on this. Both Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and the Secretary of State Antony Blinken, they testified before the Senate today on the issue. And then Blinken made his way over to the House side here at the Capitol building. He met with Mike Johnson in his office. But I'm interested to watch what happens next. Is Johnson going to try and convince his fellow House Republicans to support a combined bill? Or is he going to dig in his heels by insisting on splitting these eight bills apart? And Mary Louise, can I just take a second to remind folks, Congress doesn't have time to dilly-dally here. There's these aid bills, sure, but they also have to pass a bill to keep the government open past November 17th. Which is coming right up. NPR's Eric McDaniel, thank you. Thank you. Our colleagues at Planet Money like to look for economics in the darndest places. Recently, they went to Las Vegas to explore an economic mystery at, get this, the all-you-can-eat buffet. Erica Barris and Jeff Guo have the story. That mystery is called the flat rate pricing bias. And to explore it, we met up with Eric Chang. He's an economics professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and a buffet connoisseur. Eric took us to one of his go-to spots. Okay, let's go back in the main entrance here. According to legend, the all-you-can-eat buffet was born in Las Vegas. And this all-you-can-eat pricing model, the economics term for it is flat rate pricing where you pay one price to use a service as much as you want. For example, your wireless plan, you may have you may have all you can text and talk. Uh-huh, yeah, unlimited. Unlimited talk and text, absolutely. You see flat rate pricing in a lot of places. Public transit, gyms, streaming services, and of course, buffets. So we're only paying $17.95? Lucky us. But the mystery with flat rate prices is that in a lot of cases, it's actually a bad deal. For instance, studies have shown that many people would save money if they switched their cell phones from unlimited data plans to buying data a la carte. So why do people gravitate toward flat rate pricing? What explains the flat rate pricing bias? Economists have come up with three reasons. First is the idea that people are just irrational. They overestimate how much food they're going to eat at the buffet or how many cell phone minutes they're going to use each month. But Eric says there's another explanation, a more rational one. Consumers don't like to feel like every, every unit of, of a product they consume they're going to be charged for. This is often called like the taxi meter effect, where if you sit in a taxi, watching that meter keep ticking up and up, it has some really awful feeling. So the idea is that people are willing to pay a premium to avoid that awful feeling, to avoid the pain of the taxi meter effect. And related to that is the third explanation for why people opt for flat rate pricing. It has to do with something that economists call the insurance effect. Think of it this way. If you're not sure how much data you're going to use in a month, an unlimited data plan saves you from the risk of an enormous, surprise, unexpected bill. And at a buffet, the flat rate pricing gives you the freedom to try as many new things as you want. Because the cost of taking a risk at a buffet is zero. If I don't like it, you just don't eat it. Economists say that people are attracted to flat rate pricing for a mix of all three of these reasons. The taximeter effect, the insurance effect, 
and because they sometimes overestimate how much they're actually going to consume. Chicken cassoulet. Ooh. Julia Child, eat your heart out. If you want that, it may not be there by the time you come back for play three. I think it's worth trying. I think it's worth trying. Jeff Guo, Erica Barris, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy, and thanks for listening. Coming up in about 25 minutes on All Things Considered, the situation is desperate in Acapulco, Mexico, where Hurricane Otis has devastated the area. Help is arriving slowly, and so far nearly 50 people are reported dead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. On Wall Street, the Dow finished up about four-tenths of a percent to close at 33,052. The S&P is up more than six-tenths of a percent to close at 41.93. And the Nasdaq also finished up about half a percent to close at 12,851. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar. With modern American cuisine and craft cocktails for family meals, business lunches, drinks with friends, and group events. Gluten-free and kids' menus available, too. Start the day with 90.9 WBUR tomorrow morning. Housing prices in New Bedford have spiked, leaving many renters scrambling. We'll explain why. Plus, a look at possible Israeli military options in the Gaza Strip. Listen again. Tomorrow morning, 49 degrees at 520. Increase in clouds tonight, a low in the mid-30s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, chance of rain mid-40s. And sunshine on Thursday with a high near 50. Stay with us. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Two and a half million borrowers did not get a bill on time in this. The first month, federal student loan payments were due. Now the U.S. Department of Education is taking the unusual step of fining one of its student loan servicers. NPR's Corey Turner has been following this massive return to repayment. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. All right. So what's going on with this fine? What happened to these borrowers? Yeah, so as part of this big return to repayment, loan servicers are supposed to give borrowers at least three weeks notice before their first October payment was due. But the department says the servicer known as Mohila 
didn't do that for about two and a half million of them. Uh, as a result, about 800,000 of those borrowers then failed to make a full on-time payment. The department has told Mohila to put these borrowers on a kind of uh, protected pause until the problem is fixed. And as a fairly rare punishment, the department said it would withhold $7.2 million from the money that it contractually owes Mohila for its work in October. I should also say, Mary Louise, I reached out to Mohila, but they did not respond to my request for comment. Well, I should say I'm now curious if this was a one-off. Do we know if these mistakes are limited to, to this one problem, late bills? They were not limited to this. Uh, I just got my hands on an internal memo from the department's Office of Federal Student Aid, and it actually lists all kinds of mistakes that have been made um, since the return repayment began. It mentions those borrowers who didn't get on-time billing statements. Uh, there are also 16,000 borrowers who were returned to repayment when they should not have been. Uh, that's because they had petitioned the department to cancel their loans, saying they had been defrauded by a for-profit college. And then there is what happened to Dan Simon, he is a borrower who reached out to me a few weeks ago. He's 43, a father of three near St. Louis. Back at the end of summer, he confirmed his monthly payment by calling his servicer, and he was told, It's going to be $99 a month. I said, great, you know, $100 a month, that's so doable. You know, I got three kids, any little bit helps. Simon told me he had been automatically put in a new, better repayment plan, Mary Louise, and he was thrilled. <laughs> I think you're you're building me up to this is not going to be a happy ending. His bill was not 99 bucks a month. It was not. Uh, though I should say it's not actually clear what his monthly bill should be. Got a letter from them early September saying that my bill was going to be $633. I was like, this is crazy. So I called them right away and I talked to someone. They said, well, there was a system glitch. Now, it turns out this glitch comes up in the internal Ed Department memo I got. Servicers were miscalculating payments for a lot of people, about 78,000 Dan Simons. Overall, the memo says borrowers who called for help averaged roughly an hour wait on hold. And little surprise, more than half of them gave up and hung up before they ever got through. Give us hope, Corey. Is this going to get better? I'm going to try. Um, the problem is, this is a Venn diagram of problems. Uh, Republicans argue the Ed Department has made a ton of complicated changes to the student loan program, which is true, and that the Ed Department didn't plan well to repayment. But Congress is also on the hook here. They refuse to give the department any extra money to pay for it all, even though, as this memo points out, uh -huh. about 20 times more borrowers are returning to repayment than the system is used to in a single month. All right. Now, the White House and some in Congress are considering trying to free up more money, but with Congress backlogged and the threat of a government shutdown looming again, it's just hard to know what's going to happen. NPR's Corey Turner, and you can find all of Corey's latest student loan news at npr.org slash student loans. Thanks, Corey. You're welcome. At the Supreme Court today, the justices tackled cases that test the ability of public officials to block critics from their social media pages. It's a practice that then-President Trump often engaged in. NPR's legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. The usually quite certain justices of the Supreme Court today seem to be 
uncertainly groping their way as they sought to craft a new rule for dealing with the social media age. The first of today's cases dealt with two local school board members in Poway, California, who blocked two persistently critical parents from their social media pages. Representing the school board members, lawyer Hashim Mupan told the justices that the social media pages were extensions of the board members' campaign pages and thus were purely personal because the state had no control over them. That prompted this question from Justice Alito. What if you showed a Facebook page to a thousand people and 999 of them would think that this is an official page? Under your test, that wouldn't matter. No, replied lawyer Mupin, it should not matter. So that means President Trump's Twitter account was also personal? That's Justice Kagan raising the issue of Trump's practice of blocking critics on his Twitter account. Yeah, I think that was a harder question, Your Honor, because there was, in that case, use of a government staffer. I don't think a citizen would be able to really understand the Trump presidency, if you will, without any access to all the things that the president said on that account. It was an important part of how he wielded his authority. And to cut a citizen off from that is to cut a citizen off from part of the way that government works. At the local level, Justice Sotomayor observed, if a public official's account is deemed personal... He could exclude Muslims, Jews, whoever he wanted to, because that's a social account? Several justices asked about school board members devoting their pages to school business. Why doesn't that transform their pages into a place where the public's business is being done? Lawyer Mupan replied that school business could just as well have been discussed at the board members' backyards, or for that matter, at a campaign event that's open only to fellow Republican or Democratic Party members. Justice Barrett followed up. I think it's very difficult when you have an official who can in some sense define his own authority. You know, my law clerk could just start posting things and say this is the official business of the Barrett Chambers, right? It becomes harder the higher up you go in the chain because it's harder to identify a superior who can tell you what to do. Arguing on behalf of the board critics, lawyer Pamela Carlin contended that the parents were being denied access to important information about the public school system that's only available on these board members' pages. Justice Alito asked why this is different from a public official at the grocery store deflecting a critic by telling her to call his office. When they are clearly off-duty, that is, you know, pushing the shopping cart down the aisle, arguably they're not doing their job. But if they say they're doing their job, then yes, I would say the starting point is they're state actors. Justice Kavanaugh posed this question. If you're a a White House press secretary and you have dinner at your house and you invite over certain members of the press and not other members of the press, is that state action? There would be no constitutional claim by anybody, no meritorious constitutional claim that they have a right to come to your dinner, as opposed to uh, you don't allow people to show up at press briefings altogether. Carlin contended that a public official cannot kick constituents off his or her social media page without violating the constituents' First Amendment rights. That's what makes this case so hard, opined Justice Kagan. There are First Amendment rights all over the place.
NPR's Nina Totenberg, this is NPR News. And thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up in about 20 minutes, the connection between the decline of children's mental health and the decline of independent play. Calling all crafters, join us at City Space on Monday, November 13th for an evening dedicated to DIY and homemade creations. Free tickets are at wbur.org events. 46 degrees at 529, increasing clouds tonight, mostly cloudy tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of Black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. I'm Robin Young. President Biden has expressed almost unqualified support for Israel and now has linked the conflict to the war in Ukraine. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. We'll hear the history of the U.S.-Israeli relationship next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Israeli airstrikes destroyed apartment buildings on a large refugee camp near Gaza, leaving giant holes where the buildings once stood, as Israeli ground troops battled Hamas militants. Meanwhile, White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby says humanitarian aid is getting through, but it's far short of what's needed. Another 66 trucks got into Gaza over the last 24 hours uh, with life-saving humanitarian assistance, including food, water, and medicine. It's the highest single-day delivery so far, but again, it's a trickle compared to what needs to get in. Kirby says the administration is working around the clock to allow U.S. citizens safe passage out of Gaza over the Rafah border crossing, but many are becoming frustrated as their wait stretches into a fourth week. Here in Southern California, wildfire burning in rural area in a rural area of Riverside County north of San Diego has scorched more than 2,000 acres since it broke out yesterday. Several thousand people have been ordered to leave the area, as Madison Allman of member station KVCR reports. The blaze broke out Monday in Awanga. That's a small desert community, population roughly 700. Maggie Klein de la Rosa is a spokeswoman for the Riverside County Fire Department. The fire is wind-driven. That means the wind is making it worse. It is pushing it. Um, it's going in a northwest and a southwest direction right now. De la Rosa says the low humidity and rugged terrain aren't helping though she says they have ample resources to fight the fire. Hundreds of firefighters are tackling the flames and aircraft are helping from above. Riverside County fire officials say the cause of the blaze is under investigation. For NPR News, I'm Madison Ament in San Bernardino. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street after several companies reported better than expected earnings for the third quarter. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. The Everett School Committee voted Monday night to put the city superintendent on paid leave pending an outside investigation. The vote comes after City Hall said it received 10 anonymous employee complaints. WBUR's Emily Piper Villillo has more. The city said the complaints included allegations of a hostile work environment against Superintendent Priya Tahiliani. Tahiliani is Everett's first superintendent of color but three committee members voted against the move. Sam Lambert was one of them. 
She said members did not have enough information about the complainants or their allegations. She also suggested the move was politically motivated. To determine that one week and one day before an election, it feels very orchestrated. Students at the meeting held signs in support of Tahiliani, whose contract was not renewed by the school committee earlier this year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily Piper Valillo. Governor Maura Healy is awarding $8.5 million to 20 organizations across the state for early education and child care program renovations. These facilities, including YMCA and Boys and Girls Clubs, typically serve low-income families. The grants will allow programs to improve their classrooms and, in many cases, expand the number of children they can admit. A Boston researcher has linked a new pseudonym to Louisa May Alcott, the famed Massachusetts author of Little Women who wrote under several different names during her career. WBUR's Solon Kelleher has more. Max Chapnick, who teaches at Northeastern University, has found 13 works by E.H. Gould, a name he believes Louisa May Alcott used as a pseudonym in her early career. He says the stories, poems, and work of nonfiction are peppered with references to Alcott's life and match her style. There's a ton of these sort of circumstantial connections that are published at the right time in this period when she wasn't publishing under her own name, but between two periods of productivity in her life. Women of Alcott's time often used masculine-sounding pseudonyms to conceal their identity and publish more controversial works. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. The time now is 5.35. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools, and Hunger to Health Collaboratory, discussing integrated solutions that advance health equity. November 16th at CitySpace. Register at h2hcollaboratory.org. Increasing clouds tonight, a low in the mid-30s, mostly cloudy tomorrow, chance of rain, mid-40s. Thursday, sunshine near 50, 46 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways in select theaters Friday, everywhere November 10th. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The Food and Drug Administration took a crucial step today towards a historic decision, the approval of the first medical treatment that uses gene editing. A panel of independent FDA advisors paved the way for the treatment for patients suffering from sickle cell disease. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now. And Rob, this sounds like an important moment for both patients and for the advancement of this new kind of medicine. Tell us, you've been covering this a long time. How significant is it? Yeah, it's a big deal that's being closely watched by scientists, the biotech industry, and, and patients, of course. And that's because gene editing is generating enormous excitement that it could lead to new treatments for many diseases by allowing scientists to manipulate DNA much more easily than ever before. And this is the first time a therapy that uses gene editing to treat a disease has gotten this far, getting formally scrutinized by outside FDA advisors, which is typically the last step before getting 
getting approved. In this case, the treatment uses the gene editing technique known as CRISPR to treat sickle cell disease. And that's a terrible blood disorder affecting millions of people worldwide, including about 100,000 in the U.S. Huh. Okay, Rob, how's it work? So scientists remove bone marrow cells from patients. They use CRISPR to edit the gene in those cells and then infuse billions of the modified cells back into their bodies. The edited cells pump out a protein that sickle cell patients need to make healthy red blood cells called hemoglobin. The hope is that would alleviate the terrible attacks of excruciating pain that plague sickle cell patients and prevent the long list of complications that usually cut patients' lives short, allowing them to live full, normal lives and today's meeting. How did things go? So it was a pretty unusual FDA advisory meeting. You know, typically the FDA asked advisors to vote on whether a new treatment is safe and effective and should be approved. But in this case, the data looks quite clear. The treatment looks like it worked for virtually every sickle cell patient who's had their cells edited so far, completely transforming their lives. And it looks very safe. The FDA scientists agreed, so the agency asked the advisors to focus on whether more research is needed to make sure the gene editing isn't accidentally causing genetic mutations that could cause complications in the long run. The FDA scientists and an independent researcher raised questions about that during today's meeting. But while many committee members agreed additional research could be helpful, many also expressed enthusiasm for the treatment and few concerns that theoretical risk would outweigh the clear benefits. Here's Scott Wolf from the UMass Chan Medical School. It's really exciting to see how many patients have been treated and, and how positive the results have been. We want to be careful to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. The, the advisors also heard some pretty emotional testimony from sickle cell patients, including Victoria Gray. Victoria was the first sickle cell patient to get the treatment, and one of you might remember NPR's had exclusive access to chronicle her experience. Here's some of what she told the committee. I believe if you say yes to this treatment, that it's going to change the lives positively of many people who are suffering from diseases and disorders who now feel hopeless. But once it's come, they can feel hope again, just like I did. You know, all of Victoria's symptoms have disappeared since she got treated, enabling her to do things she could never do before, like work full time and take care of herself and her kids. Wow, that's incredible. Rob, what happens next? The FDA has until December 8th to make a decision about CRISPR gene editing treatment for sickle cell, but there are still lots of questions. One big one is, will the patients who need it the most be able to get it? It's expected to be very pricey, millions per patient, and it's complicated. That will make it hard to make it widely available, especially in less affluent countries where sickle cell is most common. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. Rob, thank you. You bet. It's Halloween. Time for a good ghost story. Here is one about a radio that haunts a bar near Milwaukee. WUWM's Lena Tran headed there to check it out. A bar is a good place for a ghost. They're dark, they come alive at night, and they're full of stories. This corner bar in West Dallas, right outside Milwaukee, is no exception. People have been flocking here for more than a century. It's been owned by different people, called different names. Crawls Hall, Coca Pelli's, Shipwrecked. Today, it's Layman Brewing. Kyle Ida runs the place with his wife, Sarah. He walks to a dark corner in the back of the pub and points to a box in the shadows. Ta-da! Haunted radio. This is an old Sears Zenith model. 
The so-called haunted radio's been there for decades. It's dark wood, about the size of a boombox, and it's clearly very old. When Kyle and Sarah bought the place, waitresses from bygone bars told them about the ghost. The old employees were like, well, there's cold drafts in the building, and the lights flicker, and I'm like, eh, it's a really old building. It's built in the 1890s. And they'd say, well, what about the radio? Like, the radio is always on. Don't you think you just forgot to turn the radio off? She's like, no, the radio's got tubes in it. It won't work. Vacuum tubes, those light bulb looking things used in electronics before transistors replaced them in the 50s. When they would come in in the morning, it would always be playing one song. It was the slow dance of the old owner, Joe Sarek, and his wife. They always ended the night with a dance. Spooky, right? Or maybe they're just a couple of sweet ghosts. A lot of what Kyle knows about Joe comes from his good friend, Lara. She's a history nerd, the kind of person who comes up with ghost tours for friends. A couple years ago, Lara was digging up stories for her next tour. So she checked with Kyle and Sarah. And that was when they told me, you know, oh, hey, there's there's a legend of <laughs> there's a legend of a ghost here, Joe. Lara took all the documents they had property records, business permits, appraisals, and a story began to emerge, the story of the man who haunts the radio. Joe is Joe Sarek, who was born in Yugoslavia in 1895, married his wife Barbara, had two sons, and on the 1940 census, he's listed as a tavern proprietor who worked 80 hours a week. The Sareks were active in the Croatian Fraternal Union the oldest, biggest Croatian group in North America. West Dallas and Milwaukee had one of the most active Croatian communities at that time. The tavern hosted meetings for two local chapters. 80 years ago, members gathered here to write an important letter. In July of 1941, before the bombing of Pearl Harbor, wrote a letter to Congress urging them to support all nations involved in the fight against Hitler fascism. Lara looks at the weathered walls of Lehman Brewing, haunted by Joe and maybe everyone else who loved this place before she did. You know, other people's stories are still going on and we're the sequel. And this night at the bar, a dad and his little girl are enjoying some fries. What do you think about ghosts? Kind of scary. But it seems like this ghost is a romantic ghost. He just wants people to have a good time. Right. Very cool. That's what Kyle thinks too. Whether real or not, Joe's, Joe's legacy and showing respect to legacy you know, I, I think he is a good ghost because this is what he, him and his wife did to survive. And this is what my wife and I are doing to survive. Kyle looks at the radio. He says if he's lucky, he'll get to haunt the bar in his afterlife and keep the ghost stories going. For NPR News, I'm Alina Tran in West Dallas. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Hurricane Otis was the most powerful storm of its type in Mexico's recorded history. It quickly grew from a tropical storm to a Category 5 hurricane. That caught an entire region by surprise and left stunning devastation. So far, dozens of people are known to be dead and dozens more are still missing. And while authorities ramp up their response, NPR's Ader Peralta reports on the people trying to pick up the pieces. 
Renal Rucci sits staring blankly at the Acapulco Bay in front of him. Everything around him is destroyed. The supermarkets, the hotels, the gas stations, they've crumbled like paper. And the dozens of boats that usually float in this bay, they're gone. My friends are gone. Quite a few of them are gone now. All the fishermen he hangs out with are missing. Rucci splits his time between Canada and Mexico. You have to be here, he says, to understand what really happened. He couldn't save his two dogs. I was holding on to those metal posts in my windows just because we live above. And uh, my dogs just were just lying. And the sofa and the furniture and the fridge. and I don't know. I don't know. It was uh, quite the experience. And as we talk, rescue workers on the bay pull out one more body. They lay it on the beach next to another body discovered earlier. They cover it with a green and red tarp, and a dreadful ritual begins. Families looking for missing loved ones surround the body. Detectives lift the tarp to reveal an already putrefied corpse. The family members cry, hold t-shirts over their face for the smell, for the shock. One woman says he's a little darker than her brother. Olivia Lurancelaya realizes quickly it is not his 25-year-old nephew who stayed on his boat the night of the hurricane. He was guarding his livelihood. I imagine they thought the hurricane wouldn't be bad, he says. He looks at the two bodies again. It's been three or four days, he says. There's no hope he's alive. Across the city, this is what we find. People wandering the streets aimlessly, trying to figure out what just happened. They stand in front of hospitals. They wave their phones at the sky, hoping for signal. I find Antonia Hernandez carrying a bag of juices that she has just taken from a supermarket. And as soon as we make eye contact, she cries. You should have seen my house, she says. It was chaos. Everything was thrown about. Everything was floating. We walk together, and it seems everyone is looting. Everything is caked in mud. Massive trees are twisted around cars. Hernandez's neighbors are all standing outside in awe of the disaster, in awe that they've survived. Pero mire, estamos vivos. But look, we're alive, Ana Laura Dominguez says. Nosotros estamos vivos, gracias a Dios. Allá arriba. We're alive, thanks to God, she says. Up there, people drowned. But we are alive. Ada Peralta, NPR News, Acapulco, Mexico. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. And coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, intensifying violence in the Hamas-Israel war and its impact on the West Bank. As the news from the Middle East continues to change quickly, stay with 90.9 WBUR for the politics, the personal stories, and the history you need to understand this time. Keep listening. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, proud to support Boston Medical Center and their Supporting Our Families Through Addiction and Recovery program, committed to helping families enhance their children's development and providing support for recovery with access to specialty care and social services. Learn more at bmc.org. 46 degrees at 549, increasing clouds tonight on this Halloween night, low in the mid-30s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, chance of rain mid-40s. Thursday, sunshine in a high near 50. Friday, mostly sunny, upper 50s. Maybe you're sitting in your car in traffic right now. Or your commute on the T is taking forever. And you're wondering, how do I start biking around Boston? Here's another tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. Make sure you have the right gear. You'll want a waterproof jacket for those unexpected storms we're famous for. And as the weather gets colder, layer up with gloves and a thin hat. No matter what, don't forget a helmet. There's a lot of bike lanes and paths all over the Boston area, like along the Charles River or the Minuteman Bikeway or the Southwest Corridor Park. However, there are some places where you're probably going to have to ride in street traffic. And oh yeah, you are still supposed to follow the rules of the road. To get more tips like this about navigating Boston, head to WBUR.org slash field guide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. We've been hearing a lot about the mental health crisis among children. Researchers have looked at a number of reasons, from social media use to isolation during the pandemic. But a recent commentary published in the Journal of Pediatrics looked at another factor, the decline of independent activity and play for children. Peter Gray is the lead author of that piece. For years, he's been following the trend of declining mental health in kids and the declining levels of independent play. He joins us now. Welcome. I'm very happy to be here. So, Peter, how is it that you and your co-author started to focus on the decline of independent play as a potential factor when it comes to the mental health crisis that we're seeing among kids? Well, I've actually been studying play for many, many years and what play does for children, how children acquire confidence and abilities and make friends through play. And I've also for a long time been aware of the fact that over the past 50 to 70 years, (laughs) there has been a continuous decline in children's opportunities to play freely away from adult intervention and control. So at some point I began to put those findings together with the observation that over this same period, um, the last 50 to 70 years, I mean, everybody's concerned about the most recent increase in anxiety, depression, even suicide among young people. But the mental health crisis really has long preceded COVID and it has long preceded um, the internet. When you're talking about this decline of independent play that you're dating back to nearly half a century, do you have any sense of where the roots of that are? What changed? I think a lot of things changed. Uh, Television changed things. (laughs) It brought kids inside, isolated them somewhat. Another thing that changed, and, and I think more significantly, 
is that over time, we began to develop the view that children develop best when they are guided and controlled by adults. This resulted in an increased amount of schooling, an increased emphasis on schooling, in the development of organized sports for kids and in other adult-directed activities outside of school, leaving less and less time for free play. In addition to that, beginning particularly in the 1980s, we developed a fear of allowing children to be outdoors unguarded by an adult. What was normal parenting before the 1980s of just sending your kids outdoors to play, that began to become regarded as negligent parenting because of fear that something terrible would happen to them. Okay, so let's unspool this out a little bit here. What is the connection between that less independent time and independent play that you're describing and the declining mental health among kids that we're seeing? How do those two things correlate? Play to me and to most play researchers is something that children do themselves. It's not something that is organized by an adult. It's something that where children decide what they're going to do and control what they're going to do and solve the problems as they're doing it. That's how children develop the kinds of character traits that allow them to ultimately become independent adults. They learn that they learn how to deal with peers without an adult intervening. They learn how to deal with minor bullying. They're always gonna be bullies around, but if you're always protected from bullies by some adult, you're not learning how to deal with that yourself. If we're not allowing these kinds of things to happen with young children, they're not learning that they can solve their own problems, they can take control of their lives, And when you believe that you cannot, then you kind of develop a victim attitude, like anything can happen at any time and there's nothing I can do about it. And that's an attitude that sets you up for anxiety and depression. I imagine if you're a parent or a caregiver for a child who's listening to this conversation, they might be asking themselves, what can I do? What are ways that I can give my child more independence, more time for that solo play that you're saying is so important. What would you tell those people? So within the neighborhood, a group of parents might decide, look, let's every Friday afternoon, let's all send our kids outdoors. Just send them outdoors. Uh, Leave the cell phone inside and there's going to be other kids out there. And maybe you have one parent out there or ideally a grandparent um, out there just for safety and you let the kids play. It takes initiative. It's not necessarily that easy to do, but I know of uh, families that do that. Peter Gray is a research professor of psychology and neuroscience at Boston College. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. A new Gallup survey tracks how often people prepare home-cooked meals in countries around the globe. It finds women are cooking about twice as many meals as men. I have thoughts. As NPR's Alison Aubrey reports, there's only one country where this gender gap has disappeared. Traditional gender roles have long been evident in kitchens worldwide. On average, women cook about nine meals a week, men about four. This started to change during the pandemic. 
with a lot of people at home, men were in the kitchen more. And the survey found the gender gap narrowed. Chef Mike Friedman remembers this time well. You know, there was a lot more time, a lot more banana bread and sourdough being baked at home. So, you know, it only makes sense that those numbers would reflect that. The survey found men cooked more and the gender gap narrowed in 2020 and again in 2021. But the latest results show this trend isn't holding up. Andrew Dugan is a research director at Gallup. This year, however, was the first year that the gender gap had actually widened. So that was a big surprise for us. In countries where it's common for men and women to work outside the home and share parenting duties, you may expect to see more equal time in the kitchen. What that might suggest is the traditional gender roles are starting to reassert themselves. Chef Mike Friedman has his own take. I don't know. I think women can handle more on their plate. I think maybe men got lazy. The survey results vary from country to country. The gender gap is widest in countries including Ethiopia, Egypt, and Nepal. Those with the lowest gap include Spain, the UK, and France, with the US not too far behind. The only country where men cook more meals than women, the survey finds, is Italy. As with many things in Italy, a lot of things that you think are social norms, they, they get flipped on their head. In the United States, women cook about two more meals a week than men. Friedman's instinct is that the survey may not capture the whole picture. He says in his house, lots of meals are collaborations. I know in my own home, my wife does a lot of cooking, but we talk about it and we talk through what should we make tonight. And a lot of times she'll start and I'll finish. And then I'm always left with the dishes. I don't know why. Not a bad trade-off. I would much rather cook than clean up. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Renewal by Anderson, supporter of the American Cancer Society. Information about Renewal by Anderson's October campaign to help defeat cancer is at renewalbyandersoncares.com. From Drexel University, whose cooperative education program works to empower students to explore future careers and discover their ideal profession before graduation. This is Experiential Education. More at drexel.edu. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. 46 degrees in Boston coming up on 6 o'clock as All Things Considered continues. Increasing clouds tonight, a low in the mid-30s, mostly cloudy tomorrow, chance of rain, mid-40s. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel has intensified its military operations in Gaza. Doctors there are struggling to help the wounded. They have very serious shortage of medications and uh, surgical material. One of them told me they had to conduct surgical procedures without anesthesia. It's Tuesday, October 31st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Susan Levy in for Lisa Mullins. 
Coming up, the Ohio abortion ballot fight. Also, a local researcher believes that he's found a short story by the author of Little Women written under a pseudonym. There are all kinds of people who have done all-cut research and who are interested and excited about this, and I think we'll get some very exciting information. A chilly night tonight for trick-or-treaters. On Wall Street today, stocks closed up. Marketplace has a full range of business news at 6.30. It's 6.01, first the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Israeli airstrikes struck a crowded refugee camp in Gaza today, destroying apartments and leaving deep craters. The number of deaths is not clear, but Palestinian health officials say at least 50 Palestinians were killed in the strike that Israel says was aimed at a Hamas commander. NPR's Alyssa Edwardy reports that Jabalia is the largest of the Gaza Strip's eight refugee camps, crowded districts, established decades ago. Photos of the area show major damage and several craters at the Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza. Gaza officials said there were six strikes that destroyed apartment blocks. The Israeli military said it was striking what it called a Hamas, quote, stronghold. It released images of explosions amid the mid-rise buildings in the camp. It said it was targeting a Hamas commander, tunnels, and militants. According to the UN, there were more than 116,000 people registered as living in the camp, a crowded residential district. Though it's unclear how many have left in recent weeks. Alyssa Nadwarney, NPR News, Tel Aviv. NPR's Daniel Estrin is also in Tel Aviv, where the Israeli military has its headquarters and where demonstrators are pushing the government to cut a deal for the hostages held by Hamas. This is Israeli military headquarters in central Tel Aviv, where Israel's war cabinet is conducting the war on Gaza. And it's also where Israelis are rallying in support of the about 240 captives being held by Hamas inside Gaza. And there are families of the hostages who are now calling on the Israeli government to agree to a prisoner exchange to release all of the Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli jails in exchange for the release of those hostages in Gaza. And this is a remarkable statement considering that more than 10 years ago Israel agreed to such a release and one of those Palestinian prisoners released became the head of Hamas, which masterminded the attack. But here one grandfather, Shmuel Brodich, says he just wants his grandchildren and daughter-in-law freed. To Flint, Michigan now, where Mayor Sheldon Neely is expressing disappointment in a decision by the state Supreme Court that effectively closes a door on criminal prosecutions linked to the city's water crisis. The other lawsuits as it relates to this, um, the monetary amount of lawsuits are still ongoing here in the city of Flint, but definitely uh, we can't lose faith. Um, But definitely today was a devastating blow Uh, not only um, to the city of Flint, but to every resident therein. The state Supreme Court today decided not to hear the appeal of a lower court's dismissal of misdemeanor charges against former Republican Governor Rick Snyder and others. Michigan's attorney general says that leaves no other option but to consider the Flint water prosecutions closed. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Governor Healy filed emergency regulations today outlining how Massachusetts will govern its upcoming emergency shelter wait list. The new rules allow the state to alter the family shelter system without approval from lawmakers. The state also moved to cap the length of time families can stay in the shelter system. 
The governor previously announced the state shelter system will reach capacity this month, and it will no longer guarantee emergency housing for all qualifying families who need it. Healy expressed her concern for those families today on WBUR's Radio Boston. I'm worried about any family in our state who is experiencing housing insecurity. I mean, my heart aches for moms and dads out there who, uh, in particular, who have kids um, and they don't have a roof over their head, okay? I mean, of course I'm worried about that. An emergency hearing was held this afternoon to challenge Healy's decision to cap the state's emergency shelter system and implement a wait list for housing. A judge in the case says a ruling could be issued as early as tomorrow. A mail carrier is hospitalized with serious injuries following a brazen daylight attack today in Medford. The U.S. Postal Service says the letter carrier was assaulted by three people just before noon while working his route in the area of Arden Street. Authorities are investigating. The city of Worcester is celebrating the construction of a new permanent supportive housing development for people who've been experiencing long-term homelessness. It does represent a first in the state, WBUR's Lynn Jolliker reports. The building in South Worcester features 24 fully furnished micro-unit studio apartments. It'll have an on-site case manager to connect tenants with support services. It's run by Worcester Housing Authority. CEO Alex Corrales says they're the first housing authority in Massachusetts to develop housing specifically for people coming out of homelessness. With this project, the housing authority is making a clear statement. We want to help our homeless population. For some of our residents, it's going to be a place of rebirth but certainly for all of them, it will be a place to live. Local service providers are identifying chronically homeless adults to apply for the apartments. They'll start moving in in about a month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Falmouth Hospital's newly renovated intensive care unit is now open. The 11,000-square-foot space features 10 patient rooms with natural light, specially designed nursing workstations, and a new family waiting room. The $10 million project was funded by the Salerno Foundation and other philanthropic donors. A group of historians and others want to exonerate hundreds of people executed or accused of witchcraft in Massachusetts. The Massachusetts Witch Hunt Justice Project wants the state to formally apologize for the conviction of the witches. Sarah Jack is a co-founder of the project and is descended from two women hanged in the Salem witch trials and a third who stood trial in Boston. It is a formal stance against scapegoating, against um, fearing others for misfortunes, against fear that has to do with not understanding somebody who may be on the margins. And she says the group has begun an outreach campaign to local lawmakers. Increasing clouds tonight, a low in the mid-30s, mostly cloudy tomorrow, a chance of rain. Mid-40s, Thursday, sunshine near 50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Israel now says it's in the second phase of its war with the militant group Hamas. It has intensified ground operations in Gaza. This is not a war on a defined battlefield. It's being carried out in civilian areas. Dr. Mustafa Barghouti is based in Ramallah in the West Bank. That's about 60 miles from Gaza. Here is what he's hearing from the 17 medical teams he is in touch with in Gaza. 
They have very serious shortage of medications and uh, surgical material. And uh, the other day, one of them told me they had to conduct surgical procedures without anesthesia. Bargudi leads a political party called the Palestinian National Initiative. He is also a member of the Palestinian Liberation Organization and a medical doctor and an activist. Dr. Bargudi first spoke with us a couple of weeks ago. So when he came to the phone today, I asked for an update on what's happening, where he is in the West Bank. What we see in the West Bank is constant attacks uh, by Israeli illegal settlers who are terrorizing the civilian population and uh, protected by the Israeli army. The West Bank is absolutely cut into pieces. Uh, There is 650 Israeli military checkpoints blocking the freedom of movement. In the city of Ramallah, where you are, do things feel normal? Is traffic moving? Are shops open, restaurants open, all that? Yeah, but many medical supplies are short. Scarcity has started to appear. And, uh, of course, people here, I've I've just been in a demonstration where people were demonstrating against the huge massacre today in Jabalia camp in Gaza. Jabalia camp is is a place where, with 120,000 refugees who were already evicted by Israel in 1948, and uh, it's only one squared kilometer. And today they use these huge American bombs killing and injuring no less than 450 people in one strike. It's making everybody so angry. I want to turn us to policy, to what you think should be done. Um, I mentioned we spoke to you earlier this month, and you told us, and I will quote you, Israel would not listen to any country but the United States, the only country that has leverage to tell Israel enough is enough and allow human beings to receive humanitarian aid is the United States. Dr. Bargudi, what do you want to see the U.S. do? What do you want from President Biden and his administration? Uh, First of all, I am sorry to say that, but I have to say it, to be honest with you. Uh, I think the American president and the state secretary uh, are becoming not only complicit in these war crimes, but even participant in them because they supply all these weapons to Israel and they are not allowing a ceasefire. What we want now immediately is ceasefire to stop the massacres, to stop the killing of innocent people for the sake of both Palestinians and Israelis. I mean, if President Biden and Secretary Blinken were on the line with us, they might argue the U.S. stands for human rights for both Israelis and Palestinians, and that it is ultimately up to Israel to make its own national security decisions. But uh, I don't believe that because they don't care about human rights of Palestinians if they are watching three war crimes happening at the same time. The war crime of collective punishment against 2.3 million people, the war crime of genocide against civilian population, and the war crime of ethnic cleansing. And why don't they accept ceasefire? How many thousands and thousands of Palestinian children should die before Israel accepts a ceasefire? The other day, Netanyahu, yesterday, said something very dangerous. He said that Israel is conducting its second independence war. What does that mean? Israel is independent already, but he means he's conducting the second Nakba against Palestinians, the second catastrophe, trying to ethnically cleanse Gaza and force 2.3 million people out of Gaza into Egypt, becoming refugees again after they have been refugees in 1948. When we spoke to you a couple of weeks ago, you said you still maintain 
what has been your lifelong vision for nonviolence? Even now, because I can hear the anger in your voice. Of course, I will never depart from this belief. I, I, I never changed my mind, even when the Israeli army shot me while I was treating an injured person in my white coat as a doctor. And I still carry the 35 shrapnels in my back. But that didn't change my, my, my mind or opinion that nonviolence is the best way. And, and I believe in that and I practice that. But the violence we see today are just beyond description. Look, I mean, a very simple comparison. United States gave and Europe gave Ukraine 224 billions of dollars of weapons and aid and everything to fight occupation. What about us? They are giving all the money and 14 billion dollars to Israel to occupy us. Are we not equal human beings? Isn't there one international law or there is one for Israel and one for the rest of the world? Let me tell you, this American policy is bad for Israelis. I think Netanyahu has become the worst and the biggest provocator of anti-Semitism worldwide because what he is doing is antagonizing people against Jewish people. And that's something I don't accept. So... That is your criticism of policymakers in Israel, in the United States. Just to be clear, your personal vision for nonviolence, this extends to Israelis as well. Respect for all human life. Of course, of course, no doubt about that. Of course. Today I was speaking in a joint conference with with one of my best friends, Avi Schleim, one of the best uh, Israeli historians in the world. And we didn't differ about anything. We have exactly the same views. And uh, you've seen all these noble Jewish people who were demonstrating in the Central Station in New York and in Washington and in so many places saying one thing, ceasefire, ceasefire, ceasefire. Enough is enough. Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, doctor, activist and member of the Palestinian Liberation Organization in the West Bank. We reached him in Ramallah. Dr. Barghouti, thank you. Thank you. When questions about abortion have been put directly to voters in recent months, they've repeatedly signaled support for abortion rights. Last year, these ballot measures came to several states on the heels of the U.S. Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Now, abortion rights activists in Ohio are wondering if the same energy that fueled their success in states like Kansas will translate in their state this year. NPR's Sarah McCammon recently traveled across Ohio and has this report. It might not have sounded like a typical campaign event. Man, I feel like a woman. But for abortion rights activists in Youngstown, a recent karaoke night was just the thing. Because this has been a long slog, and we can't do everything, can't just be work, you know? Alexis Smith is a local radiologist. She helped organize the karaoke night for activists working to pass issue one. If approved, it would amend Ohio's constitution to guarantee the right to make reproductive health care decisions, including abortion. Abortion rights supporters here have been inspired by the success of their counterparts in several states last year where abortion was on the ballot. Smith says they worked for months to get enough signatures to put their own ballot question before Ohio voters, but then they ran into another obstacle. And then it was, oh, by the way, 
you have a month, and then there's going to be this election that's going to decide everything. Republican lawmakers in Ohio called a special election in August on another measure, also called Issue 1, that would have changed the rules and made it harder for the abortion rights amendment to pass. Ohio voters turned out in larger-than-expected numbers to reject that effort, leaving the threshold for passing an amendment at a simple majority. That fight is now fully underway, and the back-to-back -back votes seem to be creating confusion in the minds of some voters. Abortion rights supporters were asked to vote no on Issue 1 in August and yes on Issue 1 now. Ariana Allen is a nursing student at The Ohio State University in Lima. I actually, I don't know anymore. Allen says she's new to voting and she supports abortion rights, but she's trying to make sense of the ballot initiative. Yeah, because like no means it's like anti-abortion now. Allen says she's going to do more research and make sure she votes in line with her values. I met her as she was talking with anti-abortion activists who'd set up a booth inside the student center. That's why we're just you know, on campus trying to educate people on what is taking place this November. So do you know, what do you know about issue one? Anti-abortion groups say they will have made calls or knocked on doors of well over 600,000 voters by election day, urging them to vote no. Meanwhile, the abortion rights group, Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights, estimates they will have reached out to more than 3 million voters. Ohioans are making this decision in a state where a strict abortion ban is waiting in the wings. The law currently blocked in court, bans most abortions after about six weeks, and contains no exceptions for rape or incest. It briefly took effect last year, long enough for a 10-year-old rape victim to make national headlines after being forced to travel to neighboring Indiana for an abortion. What happened to that 10-year-old girl, let's be clear, was absolutely tragic. Amy Natosi is the press secretary for the anti-abortion group Protect Women Ohio. I think everybody can agree on that. Natosi's group is leading the effort to defeat issue one. We met up at a coffee shop in Dayton. She says she's grateful that the rapist was caught and prosecuted, but she stops short of saying that the girl should have had access to abortion in her home state. That is up to the voters and the legislature to decide. If issue one passes, the conversation ends. Desiree Timms leads a progressive Ohio think tank and has been working on the Vote Yes campaign. She believes Ohio voters will follow the example set in other states last year. What the Republicans, frankly, have done in this environment is they have created a window for advocates on the left to say, see, look, this is what we've been talking about. Our, our greatest fears, our nightmares are coming true, and this is our time to stand up and fight back. The results in Ohio will be closely watched as abortion rights groups work to put ballot questions before more voters next year, including in other key presidential battleground states like Arizona and Florida. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Columbus, Ohio. And you're listening to All Things Considered. On 90.9 WBUR, in about 10 minutes on Marketplace, home-based child care providers are often small business owners who work for themselves. We always talk about how child care workers are among the lowest paid workers, and these home-based child care workers are particularly low paid, even though they play a really crucial role. We'll look at a labor movement fighting for better pay and benefits. That's next on Marketplace at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo and Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for Homes and Offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. 
Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. On Wall Street, the Dow finished up about four-tenths of a percent to close at 33,052. The S&P is up more than six-tenths of a percent to close at 41.93. The Nasdaq also finished up about half a percent to close at 12,851. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School, where faculty, students, and researchers are advancing together. More at umassmed.edu together. On a Tuesday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. There is new information about the shooting in Maine, which killed 18 people last week. Documents released by police show that family and army officials were deeply alarmed by the shooter's deteriorating mental health months before he carried out that state's worst mass shooting. Reporter Kevin Miller with Maine Public Radio is here with the latest. Hi there. Hello, how are you? Hi. So, Kevin, um, first off, remind us, if you can, exactly what happened last week. So police say that Robert Card, a 40-year-old Army reservist, walked into a bowling alley and then a restaurant last Wednesday with a high-powered rifle, and he shot more than 30 people, killing 18 of them. He then fled the scene, and parts of central Maine were basically locked down until late Friday. That's when Mr. Card was discovered dead of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. What new information are we learning about the mental health of the shooter and the concerns that people who knew him had before this deadly shooting? Well, these documents show that Robert Card's family and members of the Army Reserve Unit that he served in had growing concerns about his paranoia, his aggressive behavior and his talk, as well as his access to guns. They, they communicated some of these concerns to police as early as last May. Mr. Card's family told the local sheriff's office that Card was hearing voices, that he thought people were were calling him a pedophile, and they told police that he had access to more than a dozen guns. Uh, We also learned more about what led him to being admitted to a military hospital for two weeks back in July. Uh, Leaders of his Army Reserve unit were concerned about his erratic behavior, and then just one month ago, police were told from a a fellow, excuse me, by a fellow reservist that was worried about Carr because he was becoming so paranoid and angry that he said he might, quote, he might, quote, snap and commit a mass shooting. I mean, just listening to your description there, these are incredibly serious warning signs. How did the police and the Army respond to these concerns? Well, back in May, the sheriff's office talked to the family and to leaders of Mr. Card's Army Reserve Unit. The family members told police that they would talk to him. Army Reserve leaders also sold, told police that they would speak with him. But if we flash forward to mid-September, deputies then received even more concerning reports, including that he was threatening to, quote, shoot up that Army Reserve facility. They tried to talk to Card twice at his home home in uh, rural Bowdoin, Maine, uh, doing what they call a wellness check. But both times they were unsuccessful. Card either wasn't there or he wasn't answering the door. And then a reserve unit leader suggested that police give Card time to cool off as the reserve tried to get him into treatment. Uh, card he was declared non-deployable by the military but it doesn't look like the sheriff's office made any additional attempts to interact with card after that and it also doesn't appear that the army was able to get him additional help and then the mass shooting happened about six weeks later in just a few sentences were there any other steps that authorities could have taken here yeah that's obviously the big question here maine has a yellow flag law that allows police to temporarily confiscate a person's guns if a medical professional and a judge agree that that person 
poses a risk to themselves or others. This is a less sweeping version of the red flag laws that are on the books in dozens of states, but that was never employed with CARD. And a lot of people are asking why not. Yeah. And there are also questions about whether he should have been prohibited under federal law from buying new guns because of that hospitalization I mentioned. But he, legal, he apparently legally bought guns mm-hmm. pretty easily within days of the shooting. Matt's reporter Kevin Miller with Maine Public Radio. Kevin, thanks. Thank you very much. A local researcher believes he has found a short story by the author of Little Women written under a pseudonym. Louisa May Alcott was known to publish under various names throughout her writing career. WBUR Solon Kelleher reports this may be the first discovery of a new pseudonym for Alcott since the 1940s. A short story from 1860 titled The Phantom caught the eye of graduate student Max Chapnick as he searched for lost works by Louisa May Alcott. The story had an elegant humor and other familiar traits of her style. But there was one problem. The newspaper credited the story to E.H. Gould. So Chapnick chalked it up to another fruitless day in his research. He went to bed, fell asleep, and... At like 1 a.m., I woke up and I was like, oh wait, what if the story is by her and it's a pseudonym? (laughs) One important clue for Chapnick was the reference in the story to Charles Dickens, one of Alcott's favorite writers. It's like a spoof on the Christmas Carol story. The coins are talking, like the Scrooge character's coins are talking. It's an allegory against greed, like the original tale. But the Scrooge character in this version also learns not to create sexual quid pro quos with women for money. Chapnick notes that women often wrote under masculine-sounding pen names to try out more controversial topics and styles. But Alcott had a variety of pseudonyms. A.M. Barnard, Flora Fairfield, Tribulation Periwinkle. But this Gould pseudonym has never been associated with Alcott before. He combed through as many databases as he could, both digital and microfilm, to find any more clues. It was a lot of scrolling, several days of scrolling. Chapnick found seven stories, five poems, and one piece of nonfiction, all under the name E.H. Gould. Chapnick is now in his postdoc at Northeastern University, and he says further research is needed to confirm his theory. One of the challenges of doing this work is that many archives are not digitized. They're not as easily searchable. That's something American Antiquarian Society curator Elizabeth Pope says is a common misconception. I think people sometimes think that everything is on Google. Everything's been digitized and is in Google Books. A fold in the digital scan covered the first initial of the author's name. So Chapnick had searched for both I and E. H. Gould. Pope and I adopted the roles of Alcott detectives as we searched for the true initial. If you look at the digitized version and zoom in, you can see that there's a wrinkle in the physical newspaper when it got scanned. If Pope finds the original physical copy of the newspaper, we can see whether the author line was E, consistent with all the other works Chapnick had uncovered, or I, making it an outlier. So it's March 10th, 1860. All right, and we'll see if we can locate that. Pope leaves me at her desk, and in less than five minutes, she returns with a cart and a large stack of 163-year-old newspapers. Let's see. Yeah, that's March 10th. We find it, an original print of the March 10th, 1860 edition of the Olive Branch, fragile and torn at the crease with a slight fold over the author's name. She handles the papers with her bare hands. And if I very gently push this, we can see that it actually is E.H. Gould. 
This little unfolding confirms a consistency in the pseudonym E.H. Gould. I call Chapnick right when I get back to my car to share the news of our little discovery. Wow! Thank you! That's great! We spoke about how this is exactly the type of further exploration Chapnick hopes his work inspires. He believes there's more out there, and he's not alone. Oh, rare. Rare. Jan Turnquist, executive director of The Orchard House, where Alcott wrote Little Women. New pen names are not commonly discovered. (laughs) Her eyes light up as she reacted to the news of E.H. Gould. There are all kinds of people who have done Alcott research and who are interested and excited about this. And by opening up in this way, I think we'll get some very exciting information. The last time new pseudonyms were tied to Alcott was in the 1940s. It set off ripples of discoveries over the following decades that eventually led to a wave of feminist commentary on Alcott's works in the 80s and 90s. The finding of this pseudonym marks the beginning of what is sure to be a long conversation reading into the words of Louisa May Alcott, or should we say, E.H. Gould. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. To read more about this story and read The Phantom in its entirety as published in the 1860 paper, visit WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Northeastern University's Institute for Experiential AI. Join Sam Scarpino, the Institute's Director of AI and Life Sciences, as he explores opportunities and challenges in AI and life sciences during a free webinar November 8th at 1. Register at ai.northeastern.edu. And Endless Energy, helping Massachusetts residents understand their options when faced with aging or inefficient heating systems. Learn how to heat smart at goendlessenergy.com.